Thank you, Alan. I am the British element of the Festival of Minnesota, and this is all you're going to get for this weekend. <laughs> I'm Doug, and I'm a grateful member of Divine Redeemer Hospital, South St. Paul Al-Anon Group. And I'm also very grateful to the committee for asking me to be here tonight. I've been on this committee for the last two years, arranging a conference that used to be in the Registry Hotel. And I used to sit where you're sitting, looking up at people like me, and wondering what it was like to stand up there and uh, do that sort of thing. And as with all progress in this, in this program, here I am, for good or for worse. I hope it's for good. Most of us here tonight are touched by something similar, and that similarity is the disease of alcoholism. In one form or another, somewhere or another, in our background, in our family, in our lives, we're touched by its effects, we're touched by its consequences, and we're changed. I want to talk about change tonight. That's one of the things I want to touch on. And what change means. My first acquaintance with alcoholism came when I was 10 years old back in England in my hometown of Newcastle, which is a coal mining town on the northeast coast on the North Sea, up about 50 miles short of the Scottish border. It's the place where you don't send coals to. We had a friend, a lady, whose daughter was a friend of my mother's, and the daughter died, and the mother died, and the father was left alone. He was called Jonathan Johnson, and we called him Johnny for short. Johnny was a coal miner who worked on the fourth level of the Leamington mine about 15 miles east of Newcastle. And the trouble with Johnny was, he drank a lot. I would see him being brought down our street on the shoulders of two of his friends, with his feet dragging in the gutter behind, and I'd want nobody to know that he lived in our house. One afternoon, he tried to give me half a dollar, two shillings and sixpence, and that was a big coin. And as he sat there on the sofa with his collar stud undone and one collar sticking out, I saw that his shoes were on the, his boots were on the wrong feet. And I can't tell you what those feelings were. They were so strong. And I remember them now, though that is fifty years ago. I resented what he tried to do. I hated him for what he was trying to do. I couldn't get out of the room fast enough. There he was sitting in my house, our house, our home. And it was like pollution. And I was only ten. I felt anger. I felt resentment. I felt all of the things that later on I would feel 
when I was confronted with similar circumstances in my own life, but the imprint went in when I was ten. And that imprint left a smell of alcohol that has stayed with me for the rest of my life, and I don't like it even now. The imprint of this disease is deep. Fifty years ago, at the same time as this was happening to us, two men in Akron, Ohio, formed Alcoholics Anonymous. The coincidence may be just a coincidence, but years ahead that coincidence was going to change us, me, deeply. My mother had to do something about John D. We put him out of the house. We didn't know he had a disease. We just knew that whatever it was was awful. And he died somewhere else and we didn't even go to his funeral. If there's anything changed in my life, it is that I have discovered what pity can mean for those who suffer. But in those days, even at ten, that didn't mean anything. And we never knew what was going on in America 4,000 miles west of us in Alcoholics Anonymous for our good. In 1943, I was in the Royal Air Force as a trainee pilot, and we were sent to Canada for training, and I finished up in Manitoba in a town called Nipawa, west of Winnipeg. And from there I went to a town called Suris, and when we were transferred from Nipawa to Suris, I got two weeks leave, and that was the first time I came to the Twin Cities. I was 19 years of age. Across the border illegally in Royal Air Force uniform and... People gave us a great time. Gave us their cars, gave us their time, gave us their homes, gave us everything. And it was March 1944. And we were due back in Winnipeg and we had no money. And we were in the USO on Hennepin Avenue just above the State Theater if you know where that is looking for a trucking company going north across the border into Winnipeg and a lady said to us, well, what are you looking for? And we said, well, it snowed last night and it's 18 inches all over the state and we don't know how to get home. And she said, here's a Greyhound bus ticket. And as I was driving north through St. Cloud and Fargo on the Greyhound bus, I said, if I could ever come back to this place, I would. Never send a message like that to your higher power. <laughs> I went back to England, was a bomber pilot. World War II ended and we got married and we went across the Irish Sea to Dublin, Ireland to start off our married life. We had to change. And Ireland was quite a change. Try being British in Ireland and you'll know what I mean. The Irish do things differently. They have different ways of, um, of expressing themselves and you've got to learn how to change to 
understand that, you know. They don't like authority. There's a guy in a semi-truck stuck under a bridge in Ireland. And he's out of the truck and he's looking at it and he doesn't know how he's going to get it from under the bridge. And up the road on a bike comes an Irish policeman, a member of the Garda Síochána, as it's called in Gaelic. And the policeman throws his bike into the ditch and steps out and puts his hands in his suspenders and says to the driver, Are you stuck? And the driver says, No, I was just delivering the bridge and I lost the address. They say things like, when they meet you, you know, is that yourself? Like, it wasn't, you know. That, uh, <laughs> or you go to the doctors and you're sitting on a chair and the morning paper's underneath you and somebody says, are you reading that paper you're sitting on? <laughs> You've got to learn how to change. And another place and another circumstance means you change. And we changed as much as we could. We stayed pretty well the way we were and brought a little bit of our good English culture with us, but fitted in as best we could to the uh, environment and made a lot of friends and all of that stuff. But after a while, something wasn't right. We were strangers in a strange country, and uh, one of the things that we had was a large family. In Ireland, they say it's the potatoes that do it. But we did have a large family, and in the hospitals in Ireland at that time, it was good to have a glass of Guinness, uh, because it was good for you. That's what the hoardings all said all over the country, Guinness is good for you. Guinness is a black drink, thick black stout. The froth on the top is about half an inch thick, and it stays all the way down the glass when you drink it, and I didn't like Guinness. I still don't. Catches me right at the back here somewhere, and I don't like that sting. But if you like Guinness, that's what you drink it for. We had 12 bottles of Guinness coming into our house regularly from Murphy's Pub up on Rathgar Road, and I didn't drink it. And 12 empty bottles went out, and a little guy with a cap would come to the front door and touch his cap and say, there you are, Mr. Granger, and hand the bottles in. And bottles would go out, bottles would come in, full ones in and empty ones out. Circumstances were different. Tension. I was a communicator and I found I couldn't communicate with my own family. I didn't know what was wrong. I could go to Mass on Sunday morning and five minutes after I had thanked God for being in me, I'd be having a flaming row in the car. Didn't matter who it was, anybody. Something was going wrong and the stress was increasing and we were alone in a foreign country. We didn't have the kind of friends that people who grew up there had. All kinds of stresses were on us because we were young and we were married and we had bills and we had all of the other things that were going on and something was happening that I wasn't even aware of. Wasn't aware of for years. I'd sit in the parking lot in Rathfarnham shopping centre, just round the corner from where we lived, and look out through the window for hours, wondering what in heaven's name was happening. Why didn't I want to go home? 
I'd go out and do a lecture or a talk like this and feel I was reaching people and I couldn't reach anybody back in my own house. And on the radio there'd be slow boat to China. I'd like to get you on a slow boat to China. And I could see myself sailing out there down by Singapore heading around the Malacca Straits and I could escape from this tension and this crisis and this feeling and this peculiar situation that was happening to us. It's not my business tonight to talk about my alcoholic. I want to talk about me. I want to talk about what happened to me, not what happened to others. What happened to me? What happened to me was I didn't know what was going on. I was confused, perplexed, lost, alone. A friend of ours was a doctor, came over to Dublin on a visit, gave us a call one morning and said, uh, would you like to come out and help me with some problems I've got over in the States? And it just happened that I had a gap in my contract with the communication center, which is a national training organization, and I was the head of press, print, and design in that organization. I had television programs and radio programs and lectures, all kinds of things like that. And the contract was coming up for change. And I said, where do you want me to come to? He said, Minneapolis, St. Paul. I said, well, what do you know? <laughs> when? He said, Saturday. We paid for it. Bring your wife. So we went. September 1971. Fall. Beautiful. Lovely. Lake Minnetonka. Had a wonderful time. When we got back to Dublin, our eldest daughter, we have seven children, three girls and four boys, had been out to Yugoslavia that week that we were away, a couple of weeks that we were away, because she worked in a travel agency and she'd met there the man of her dreams. And Susan, our second eldest, had met a boy from Dublin, and before we knew it, the two of them wanted to get married. So we came back from America to the first of our two children escaping from the nest. You know, I didn't blame them for escaping. I mean, it was fun to come to St. Paul. When we were in St. Paul and in Minneapolis during that time, well, let me put it this way. In Dublin, in those days, in the middle of the night, you know, the town was full and there'd be policemen walking up and down the pavements and taxi cabs taking kids home from dances and buses pulling in all night service and street photographers taking a picture of the morning papers being sold and we got to St. Paul that September and we saw six people in the whole city. <laughs> and Frida said to me in the car we were in, could you ever imagine living in a place like this? Again, I say, never run a thing like that up in front of your higher power because he's likely to answer the question and tell you what it's like to live in a place like this very shortly, and that's what happened to us. The dreams went on of escape, and I was offered a job in San Diego for a publishing company. And that seemed to be it. 
sea, surf, sky, sunny California. That seemed to be it. I could manage to get us all the way to America and into California and we could start again. And that was no mean achievement. Let me tell you that getting into America is tougher than getting out of the Soviet Union. And I did it all by myself. I managed it all by myself. I went out first and the family came later. Down the ramp in Los Angeles airport and David over here said to his mom as he was coming down the uh, ramp, look at dad, he looks like an American. As I stood there to wait for them, you know. We got into a lovely house in San Diego, it was on the side of a hill. 15 miles east of the city in La Mesa on Mount Helix. Every European has a view of America and it's like a Jimmy Stewart movie, you know, he drives up the hill with his arm around the girl in the open car and there's the lights of the city all out underneath and we had that right outside our back door and I did that all by myself. And the view was Mexico just there, 20 minutes, and the Bullring, and the Coronado Islands, and all the rest of it running up. And the mountains behind, and the Sierras. And two weeks after we got there, I came home one day and put my key in the lock, and I knew what was inside the door. It's exactly the same thing as what was inside the door back in Dublin, no change. The television was on. The place was in chaos, and the problem had arrived 7,000 miles away from where we left it. Lesson number one, there is no escape by geographic translocation. It comes with you. At this time I was working with senior medical people and specialists, and I talked to them about the problem. And they said I should see a trick cyclist, psychologist, and talk over with him the problems that I had. I didn't know what the problem was. I mean, I thought it was easy for anybody to just say they didn't want to drink and they didn't have to drink. What was wrong with that? I didn't have to drink. I could stop any time. Just a matter of willpower, wasn't it? talk to the priest. He'd say, offer it up. And I'd say, offer it up to who? He's not there. I've tried. I kneel by the side of the bed at night and I ask him what's going on and he's not there. I tell you, he's not there. Who do I offer it up to? And just to let me see who I had to offer it up to, all of a sudden, my higher power took a hold on my life and our life and changed it. The company I worked for was closed down and was pulled back to the place it came from, which as it turned out was St. Paul, Minnesota. <laughs> now I didn't come to America to go to St. Paul, Minnesota. If I had my way, I tell you, I would not be here tonight. I had not managed to get us to the United States to finish up in St. Paul, Minnesota, or anywhere else in Minnesota. 
And when we told our daughter, Pamela, that we were going to Minnesota, she said, no chance, I'm not going up there. Do you know if you stick your tongue out on a barbed wire fence in Minnesota in winter time, it sticks. <laughs> you could see all those Minnesotans along the Canadian border, you know, with their tongue sticking to the wire. <laughs> We drove in a clapped-out Chevy Nova from San Diego Airport with a missing hubcap and a Wisconsin number plate on the front. Everything, you know, everything but the parrot. All we had in the car. And we saw this beautiful country of yours and it is something and it was therapeutic and it was helpful and it was wonderful and it was necessary. And God in his wisdom gave me some time to put my mind where he wanted it to be. But I tell you, as we came through Worthington and Albert Lee, it was an oh God situation. <laughs> I was having trouble changing, see? I mean, why do I have trouble changing? I have changed from my hometown to where we lived and, and going, uh, you know, in another place in my hometown and then I went to Canada and I had no trouble changing in Canada and then we went to Ireland and I didn't have too much trouble changing in Ireland, but I was having trouble with this. I couldn't trust the decision that was being put to me and I'd like to think about that for a little bit, you know. I get into a plane and fly to Gatwick Airport in London and I never even met the pilot. <laughs> and he takes me there and I trust him. And I find it difficult to trust God as I understand him. Isn't that crazy? Why? Why can't I hand it over and let my life be taken to wherever it is he wants to go? Why? What's a pilot got that he hasn't got? <laughs> Especially just recently. <laughs> we changed to St. Paul. In St. Paul we had a house on Wentworth Avenue in uh, West St. Paul. We were pu pulling it down to put up a Kmart. That's why we got it. We had four children. It wasn't easy to get a house with four children. There wasn't anything much in the house. There was a bed that was due to go to the Salvation Army with the stuffing sticking out. Our four boys slept on the floor that first night and we lay on the mattress and looked up at the ceiling and I remember 2.30 in the morning that morning I had hit the lowest point I'll ever hit in my life, I think. Alone. Wondering what had happened to me. I'd been the editor of a newspaper, I had my own design studio, I had my own radio program, I had my television stuff, all the things I did in Ireland. I was an artist of some reputation. What the heck had happened to me? I was in the dead center of America and there was nothing. No people, no friends, no future, no choice. I'd been told there was a job here and it wasn't the job I'd chosen. What could this all mean? Well, some weeks later, when we had identified what our problem was, I discovered what this all meant. In this state, in our condition, 
for what we had was the solution and that's why we were there. It had nothing to do with where I had managed to get us. It had nothing to do with what I wanted in my life. It had nothing to do with me at all. It had to do with us. And it had to do with God. And it had to do with the choice that he made to put us where we needed to be for our good as he wanted it. It took me about five years in the program to figure that out. I fought that transfer like you wouldn't believe. I mean, being here, I couldn't believe it. Who wants to be here? That was the way I felt at the time. I'm here now because I like being here now. But that's a different me you're looking at. The guy who came would fight it all the way down the road. Somebody accidentally one day happened to point out a man I saw in the place I worked and he had on a, a Hubert White suit, I'm sure, you know, looked pretty classy to me. Somebody said, you know, he's an alcoholic and I thought, gee, alcoholics in America aren't anything like alcoholics where I come from. <laughs> so that guy nearly threw himself off a bridge one day. Well, when I found the first bottle of vodka in the wardrobe upstairs in that house we had just occupied, two weeks after we got here, because across the street was a place, a building, and above the building was a sign that said, Booze Mart. And already the substance was in place. I knocked on the door of that guy and thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. Maybe he knows something I don't. And I was in there with him for an hour, and he said to me at the end of the hour, do you know something? He says, you're terribly sick. And I said, there's nothing wrong with me. I don't think you heard what I was telling you. He said, I don't care what you're telling me. You're very sick, and you better go home and tell your wife that she had better come down with you tomorrow morning because it's Saturday and there's nobody around so don't worry about it and we'll talk to each other about this problem and you've got to get something done about it. I thought he was a nut. I went home and I was scared to bring up the subject. Thought about it all night, chicken. 8.30 the next morning, I said to God, please help me to do whatever it is I have to do. Do you know that was the first time I had addressed God directly for help in years? And I heard myself saying, as a guy at work says, I've got a problem and he thinks I need some help and he wants you to come with me, will you come? And the answer was yes, just like that. So we went, much to my surprise. And the guy told us how we could help ourselves and in St. John's Hospital, treatment was found for the alcoholic's problem, and I was told, go to Al-Anon and learn about what's wrong with you. The problem is, you see, you can identify the alcoholic's problem, but now you've got to identify what's wrong with you, and that's not so easy. Wednesday night, Thursday night, I'm sorry, Thursday night, out on Highway 110 in Sunfish South Suburban Group in the church that's now called St. Anne's. 
was then the Good Shepherd. A group of people told me that I should talk to my kids about the problem had I ever done it. Never struck me. No, I said, I haven't done it. I said, go home and do it. Read the literature. Take steps. The twelve steps. And come to meetings. Try it for six times at least. As though it works. And I did. And from that point onwards, our lives changed. We tied a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree and had a celebration when we were all together again after the hospital treatment was over. And my boys cut out letters out of the colored paper and we hung a sign on the back, on the back wall of the kitchen. Welcome home. And we've worked our program together since that time. And that should be the end of the story. And it isn't because I had difficulty with change. I could not understand what it was that was wrong with me. And I had to learn all over again how to trust. I had to overcome a whole thing which begins with the second step of this program, you know. Beginning to hand it over and recognizing that there's a power greater than me that can restore my sanity and bring me back to who I am if I'll only look inside and find what's there already, the power to carry that out. But that was a long way down the road. The program seemed to come very well. I could put on a good story. I got my first ulcer in a parking lot in Brainerd. Minnesota, attending a conference. I walked out of the hotel, Fragrance Hotel, across the parking lot, and I couldn't get in my car. I fell into the car. We were staying up at uh, Breezy Point for a weekend, like about now. And I can't remember getting to Breezy Point. I can remember falling out of the car in Pequot Lake outside of a pharmacy, trying to get into the pharmacy and it was locked and I was lying on the road with my face two inches from the, the blacktop and couldn't get back into the car again. I'd blown a hole through the side of my stomach about the size of a quarter and six pints of blood had disappeared down there. When they got me into Divine Redeemer Hospital, it was touch and go. I understand it was pretty close to how you can become a cabbage if that sort of thing had gone on too much. And the person who I had had trouble with, with alcoholism, was the one who got me there. If I had blamed, I would soon learn that you cannot do that. But those you have feelings for can often have feelings for you too, and they can, in fact, in fact, help you to save your life. I became a resident member of Divine Redeemer Hospital. As a matter of fact, I became one of the founder members of the group in Divine Redeemer, of which I am now proud to be a practicing member. I was in there so much, I practically got chairs in the hospital. Went back three times. My higher power puts me on the flat of my back when I don't know what's going on. Always. 
I was on the flat of my back in Memphis Avenue looking up at the ceiling at 2.30 in the morning trying to figure out what's going on. And in the hospital I could lay on the flat of my back to figure out what's going on. I need to be removed. I am dumb. I can't figure it for myself. And what seemed to be being said, and which I couldn't get, was, will you just let go for heaven's sake? But it took me a long time to figure that one out. I have discovered that there is no wonderful, beautiful recovery that looks good all the way and the sort of music as the film fades, you know. It's not that for me. I have pain in my recovery. I don't mean I don't have serenity in the middle. Don't get me wrong. I just mean if I'm going to get well, I better learn that my muscles hurt as I'm jogging along the street. That it's perspiration all the way and that's part of health. And that pain is a part of recovery. And that in accepting pain, in accepting what I do not understand, I make my first step of surrendering to the inevitable consequences of getting well. And that if I will allow it, the surgeon with his knife knows very well what he's cutting out, and it is painful for me. You may not have that experience, I do. It seems to me that the more I try to give in this program now, the harder it gets for me. I have to work at my program harder. That the now of me is that it's give all the way. That I have to learn how to let go. And that has meant that I now sit in a city I didn't choose, in a state that doesn't, that isn't mine, and I have more friends than I've ever had in my life. In giving, I've got such a great reward. I was an artist of some repute. I'm not really anymore. I've got lots of mementos, lots of good intentions, lots of efforts that I try to get back to. But am I the same person? No. What is expected of me now, in my program at this time, standing here, looking at you, wondering how I ever got here? Everything's against me. I don't speak like you. I don't think like you. I don't feel like you. This isn't my place, and yet, Having said that, in the shadow of me, that third dimension that I must throw of myself, the shadow of myself with all those negatives in it, is the light side of me that has dimension that I never had before. I have a view about what it is that's expected of me by my higher power who I choose to call God. God wants me to give and to grow up. And if I don't, I'm put on the flat of my back until I figure it out for myself. I am Santa Claus. There isn't somebody up there with a fort or a 
train set or something that I can ask for that's delivered on Christmas morning because I want it. Grow up, will you, for heaven's sake, Doug. You're Santa Claus. How much have you got to give? Are you prepared to change everything? Lose everything? Give everything? Do anything? To make that twelfth step at the end of this program real. How far are you prepared to go? I mean the whole way. So I need to be in constant contact with God because I cannot do that by myself and I would be a fool if I tried. I need the companionship of people who appreciate that sort of thing in me and in themselves. I need to spend time, the most precious thing I've got because someday I won't have it, with you, with mine, with myself. And that time means that in the morning when I've waken up, the first thing I do is put my hand out and get sustenance for the me inside myself. I used to be a person who woke up scared to death of today. And not so long ago, I could even put it into weeks, days. I waken up with the threat of the imprint of years of worrying about today. And if today I don't take what I must do, which is to get in constant contact with the person who exists with me every day of my life, through every hour and every minute, I don't have a chance. And because I do that, I can be a three-dimensional me. The people who deal with me can see me as I am, and if I am not suitable, that's hard luck on them. And I don't mean that as a throwaway. I just mean that I am me, what and all. And I'll work on it, and I'll be in touch, and I'll try and give time, and I'll try and accept, and I'll try and admit when I'm wrong, and I'll try and allow you to be whoever you are, even if I don't like it. And I hope that when I go to my meetings at night, on a Thursday or a Tuesday, that I meet people like you trying to do the same sort of things as I'm doing, and somehow we will have a spirit that will be what our recovery is about, that will lift us up and out and into acceptance of all the things we didn't choose for ourselves. Therefore, I can face a job that doesn't particularly suit me. I can face a person I don't particularly like. I can have the attachment to the presence of God in my life now. In this room, come in with me here. And I can therefore be detached from the other power that is out to make it impossible for me to be me. Because if there's a higher power, be sure there is a lower one. And so where am I now, having told you what it was like and what happened and where I am now? Where I am now is searching in a program that's for life. It's not a quick fix. It's not something that I'm going to get for now and band-aid over and then be able to throw away and say, that's it, I've got the fix, you know, there's the medicine, I've taken the cure. 
I can't just live on the diagnosis of what it is in my life. I have to take action and I have to learn how to be more than how to do. I've got to be me. And so I need to spend time looking into me and looking about me. I brought this along with me because it's something that I treasure. It's a little book. A printing company that's not in existence in Minneapolis. I used to produce this little book uh, just for notes for people like me. This is an inventory I keep of myself constantly. I find that I can get up in the morning and if I pull out of the driveway a little old lady with purple hair and black photos goes by and the car nearly takes her nose off and I say, damn! And there I go again, see, puffing judgment. I have to watch who I am and how I assume that little old lady may be rushing to her husband's bedside in the hospital for all I know, but when she goes past me, I I have to watch that in me. I pass judgment. It says here I procrastinate. I wrote this about myself on August the 12th. Tending to put off the difficult things. I operate by avoidance. It builds up inside a pressure. And underlined I've written, do it now even if it tastes awful. And so on about myself as I watch myself during the day. This program offers me the remedy, not just the diagnosis. And if I walk through the steps of this program, I know I'm going to be okay. And that is a miracle for me. Because I am okay despite myself. I'm no longer in charge. I'm no longer Mr. Fix-It. I am at the mercy of power greater than myself who can restore me to sanity. If only I will take steps and follow. Somebody said, I think it was C.S. Lewis, that the day we take the first step backwards into paradise is the day we turn round to God and say, what is it you want me to do? Because the day we walked away from it was the day that we knew what we were going to do and went out and did it. And we know the screw up the world's in and the consequence of that. The day I step backwards towards paradise is the day today when I ask what is it for me to do and I go out and I'll do it. And as a consequence, I don't think I've got ulcers anymore. One day I was told there isn't any sign that you have and um, go easy and try and see how food affects you and have a drink if you like and see what happens then. So I did. And nothing happened. One of the minor miracles in my life as a result of this program. I'd like to finish with just another miracle because I think this program delivers on its promises. My mother was 80 and she'd never been to the United States. And she lived in Newcastle and we lived on Delaware Avenue in West Paul. And she came. And we were scared when she left because when you're 80 and you leave your children behind in America, it's pretty sure you may not see them again. 
And it was time for her to go back, and she didn't know a nickel from a diamond. She's going back to New York, you know, to Kennedy Airport and switching flights and getting across to England, and boom. And we knew the tension would be terrible. So Frida and me knelt down by the side of our bed, and we asked God for help. Please will you look after Mum on our trip back home, and take the pain away tomorrow when she leaves us. took me a lot to do that. I mean, you know, they say that you don't see too many men in Al-Anon. How many times would I want to admit that I'd kneel down at the side of a bed and pray to God? I mean, I've got to be really a strange person. But I did that time. It was 8.30 the next morning, a phone goes in the house and it's Chuck, a friend of ours. Doug, have you seen what's on television? This is about seven years ago. I said, Chuck, my mother is getting ready to go to the airport. I'm not watching television. He said, put the television set on. Put the set on. Here is the civic center of my hometown, Newcastle, in England, on the television set. In my house in Delaware Avenue, and my mother's going back there today, right? Coming out the door is President Jimmy Carter with a tree and a shovel. Mom, come and have a look. She said, that's the civic center. I said, yeah. She said, what's he doing? I said, he's planting a tree outside the civic center in Newcastle. She said, I want a tree. I said, what do you want a tree for? She said, if he can plant a tree in my country, I can plant a tree in his. <laughs> Jump in the car up Marie Avenue, Southview Garden Center, 25 bucks, tree in the trunk, back home, dig a hole, camera, take a picture. Out in the front garden, in the front yard of our house, and the tree is there now, and it's got apples on it, and it's lovely, and it was planted there by my mother, and it's so wonderful, because she said when it was finished, that's great, now I can go home. And she did, no trouble. I could not have fixed that. It took somebody greater than me to so arrange that that Jimmy Carter was coming out of my civic center back. I mean, how did that happen, right? This program delivers. It delivers in a way that's human. It delivers in a way that's real. It delivers in a way that's permanent. I've got a tree in my front yard to show it. And she died two years ago. And I'm glad that happened. Because that's me and my mother permanently close to us for a long time during my life ahead into the future. A sign of something that was done just for me. And I could even see God smiling at it. And we knelt down and said, thank you, God. If you follow the steps, if you practice the principles, if you do it as it should be, and if you give all you have got, this program is miraculous. And I hope your experience, if you ever have to stand up here and do it like I am doing it, will be equally wonderful. And I wish you well. I wish me well. I wish God well. I think he's marvelous. Thank you.